The reading today comes from Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, If the Lord had not been on our side, when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We're doing the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, and they're songs. And they're meant to be sung, and we're supposed to read them, and we're supposed to pray through them, and we're supposed to understand them in light of that. And we've had a chance to look at the first few, and now we're at Psalm 124. And Psalm 124, if you've come in here today and you're struggling, or you're cynical, or you're downtrodden because life's uh, thrown you a few blows lately, this is the psalm for you. I mean, this is a psalm where the song says, the psalmist says, listen, I need help. I need a place to turn. I need someone to answer me, and I need relief. And so this psalm turns to God. And they were singing these songs, as you remember, to remind them they're on their way from their hometowns as a people three times a year, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle, spring, summer, and fall, to Jerusalem to worship God. And they would sing these psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, the psalms of ascent, as they go. And so the whole community singing the songs that we're talking about. Three things I want you to see from this song. Three things. One, his accurate portrayal of life and help. The psalmist is a realist and gives us an accurate picture of life and the help that is offered. The second thing that I want you to see as a pilgrim on this road is he says, you know what? There are lots of hazards out there. If you're going to travel this road, there are hazards. But don't be upset because the third point is you need to find help and you're going to find it in really strange places. Help is found in God in some pretty bizarre places, places we would not expect. So let's look at the first point. Life and help accurately portrayed. In the first line of the psalm, twice describes God as being for us, on our side. So that theme starts, God is for us. And then the last verse, verse 8, we read, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so we have the psalmist boldly declaring, God is for us, he's not against us. God is on our side, we are his people, he is our God. The maker of heaven and earth has entered in to save us, redeem us, guide us, and be with us. Bold declaration. Now, when you were, if you're listening closely, and as even I say those things, some of you are probably, a red flag goes up. You know, as a pastor, I can stand up here on a Sunday morning, and I can tell you how great God is, and how powerful He is, and how quick He is to save, and how He comes in, and He redeems you, and He helps you in your moments of Christ. I can say that to you, and you'll come after, to me after the service, and this has happened a few times, and you'll say, you know, you need to be careful with your pronouns, because you say our, He's our help. But let me tell you what happened to me these past few weeks. And that person will go into a dialogue of how they've experienced great hardship at work or with their marriage or in their family. He may be your help and he may be other people's help in this church, but he's not my help. Because I've gone through real difficult times and I've asked for help and I have not found relief. Throughout the week, I hear from many of you the trials that you're going through. I hear the family crises. I hear the difficulties you're experiencing at work. And more often than not, there's this underlying theme of, if God is really my help, then why isn't he helping? (laughs) You're right, sister. Oh, you're ahead of me now. (laughs) 
He is, you're right. If we have, if we have an expectation... If we say to God in the midst of our crises, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? The thinking is, I'm, you're either not there or you're not listening to me because I'm crying out to you. And it goes even, even deeper than that. We think, well, if you're real, if you're really real, then you'd step in because I'm in desperate need now. I'm in the fowler's snare. I'm being swallowed up. I'm being overcome by the raging waters. I need your help. Now, I used to fall into this trap. I don't anymore, praise God. But I used to, for a long time. Someone would come to me with this complaint. And really, they're complaining against God. Right? They're saying, where are you? And I would jump in to defend God. <laughs> you know, I would, I would jump in as his, you know, I was working in the complaints department of humanity, right? And I'm the clerk. And they ring the bell and they said, excuse me, sir, why isn't God helping? And I go, well, this is, this is what's happening. And I try to explain God or explain his actions or why it's happening. That's a terrible place to be, right? I mean, first of all, God doesn't need a press secretary, okay? And if he did, he wouldn't hire me to do it. God doesn't need apologists. He needs witnesses. He needs people that will testify to who he is. He doesn't need me trying to explain the last three chapters of Job and what he really said to Job. Gird up your loins and listen to me. He doesn't need me explaining that. He doesn't need me to explain what Paul really meant in Romans chapter 9 about the saved and the unsaved. And going, what? No, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need me to explain why the stock market is so volatile or why we see crisis taking place throughout the world or why we see such political turmoil. He doesn't need me doing that. What he needs for me and for you is to be a living witness, a testimony to who he is and the help that he really offers in times of crisis. We even go so far as to use 1 Peter 3.15 to justify being the complaint clerk, Right? Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And that's a whole other sermon. But that doesn't mean that you argue on behalf of God all these little points. Why your life isn't good. Why your life is so good. Why the stock market is going sideways. That's not why we're here. That's not what the psalmist is calling us to. And the psalmist is redirecting us. He's saying, stop so much of the apology and start the witness. Start the testimony. Declare. Make the radical declarations that this psalmist is making, that God is our help always. And so we have here a psalmist that doesn't dismiss the crises. He doesn't even argue against them or for them. He doesn't try to justify them. What he does, he says, in the midst of all this, and all being swallowed up, being overcome with the torrents of water, in the midst of the snare... The real living God, the creator of the universe, the maker of all that is seen and unseen, is your very real, present, intimate, immediate help. He's saying that's what's real. That's what's ultimately real. And so you have this vigorous declaration through lyrics and song. And they're singing this. On their way to Jerusalem, they're singing this. And it changes everything. It changes how you approach life. And it changes the question. Because if you're saying that this is life and God is real help, then you will no longer ask the question, why isn't he helping me? It'll change the question this, how can someone, in the midst of such great crisis, actually see God as their help? How can someone who is being swallowed up, who is suffering real crisis in life, actually sing like this? And you have to pause, and you have to ask, because people throughout the centuries have been doing it. In crisis, in hardship, in pain, in suffering, they've been singing the Lord in great joy and great praise. So instead of asking, where is God, we should ask, how can they do that? How can anyone sing like that and praise God like that in the midst of such 
pain and suffering. It's so bold. In fact, this psalm is so bold. You have to. Before you go back to your whimpering and self-pity, before you go back to, you know, you have to say, how is he doing it? What did he get that I don't get? What does he know that I don't know? Because I want to know it. Because I don't like the self-pity. I don't like the perpetual state of, of doomsday scenario in my life. I don't like it. In fact, what's so great, look at the first verse again. He says, if the Lord had not been on our side, then he pauses. Let Israel say, not just me, listen up. He's saying, everybody, join in, right? Sing with me, he says. If, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared up against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. And he's saying, this is not just... My help as a psalmist, I'm writing lyrics, and we, we believe this is from David. So it's not just David who had a heart for God saying, this is my help. He's saying, this is for all of Israel. This is for all of God's people. This is a communal cry and a communal help from a communal God. So you can't say, oh, that's for the pastor, or that's for that guy, or her. For everybody that belongs to God. You, the person sitting next to you. And the two illustrations they give are, they're catastrophic in nature being swallowed up and being swept away. Now we go, what history did they have? You remember in Numbers, remember the story of Korah? Korah. I and mean, you re- do that in Sunday school. You want to freak kids out? That'll freak them out, right? Korah and 250 community leaders throughout Israel. Korah's a Levite and he goes to Moses and Aaron, remember? And he challenges their authority. Do you remember this? I'll, I'll read to you what he said. He goes to Moses and Aaron. He says, you have gone too far, Moses. The whole community is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? And he's challenging God's appointed leader. You know what the consequences were for that? <laughs> I'll read it to you. The ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. That's not just a story. With their households, all of Korah's men and all their possessions, they went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. And they ran. You'd run. I'd run. I know I would. So when they hear the word in their, in their poetry, swallowed up, they have an image being swallowed up. When I was a kid, if you lived in this area, you did the duck and cover drill. Remember earthquake, duck and cover, and they put you under these, these funky little desks that wouldn't protect you, you know. I remember thinking, I'm going to just think, this thing falls, I'm dead no matter what, right? But I remember thinking, you know, as a kid, you have these images of earthquakes. I remember thinking, I'm under my desk, and it may prevent something from hitting my head, but what if the earth opens up? I'm in. I'm, I'm close to the ground. Shouldn't I be on top of the desk, right? Maybe I can jump away from the hole. That it's going to open up and swallow me alive. The Israelites understood what it meant to be swallowed up by their enemies. They had experienced it in the time of judges again and again. The oppressor would come and completely conquer them and drive them out. So they understood this fear. It was a real fear and a real part of their history. And then he also talks about, in verses 4 and 5, the flood, the enemies, the flood would have engulfed us, the torrent would have swept over us, and the raging waters would have swept us away. And there's so many... Illustration scripturally, whether you know, the, the writer was referring to Noah and the great flood or referring to um, the Exodus account and Pharaoh's army being swallowed up in the Red Sea. But there was a very real practical experience of flooding in the Middle East both then and today. And if you were traveling, because they would have flash floods, and we've seen some of these throughout the Midwest just recently, but these flash floods would actually cause streams to rise where they weren't. 
And they would sweep entire communities away. And so there, there was a legitimate fear that one minute, life's good, we're, we're traveling as a family, our entire town is here, we're going to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, one minute we're okay, the next minute the rains come and the, the torrents sweep everybody away. I mean, just in the news, uh, Tropical Storm Lee, Lee, Tropical Storm Lee making its way up through uh, the, the Midwest and into the East. Uh, it was, people woke up one morning getting ready to go to work. And they made their children's lunches, right? And within a matter of hours, their kitchen table's floating down First Street. Just like that. Swept away. So they saw it. They, saw it, they understood it. We get it too. And what we're talking about is catastrophic life events. Events that change us. Change who we are and how we see the world. And it may not be a literal earthquake. Or it may not be an actual flood. But you've experienced it yourself. You go into work one day after 30 years and your boss says, thank you for your time. You're dismissed. You're fired. Go home. Or you come home one day and your husband and wife, they've left. Or someone that you love, a child, loved one, dies. These are the times when the earth shake in our own lives and when those floods come. And the psalmist is saying, when they come, cry out to God. The psalmist is not trying to paint this really good life you're going to have if you come to Christ and you get saved and you get baptized and you go to church. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying life for the disciple is hard. Period. Where does your help come from? In the midst of the discipleship, in the midst of the pilgrimage, as you walk in the light of Christ, as you experience the flood and the earthquake and the fowler snare, who do you cry out to? Where do you turn I love it because this psalm is not a Disneyland psalm. It's not a pretty psalm. It's not a beautiful psalm that makes you feel happy and skip out of church. It's not that. It's real. It's gritty. It's raw. And we can identify with it. And what he's saying is, in the midst of all this, and what makes the psalm so fantastic, is that he's singing it intact. He's saying, the flood has come. The earth has opened up. I've been caught in the fowler snare. But every single time, every time, God sets me free. Every single time. And so he sings this not being destroyed, not being disintegrated, not being abandoned, not being torn to pieces. Why? Because the ultimate strength, the ultimate health comes from God, right? I mean, that makes sense. Whatever crisis you're in, God's bigger, right? Whatever experience you've gone through, God can overcome that. There's nothing we experience in life that God cannot be cried out to and God has the power to intervene and save us from it. Whatever it is. And the hard part is how God saves us and our expectations may be very different. We think he's just going to make things right, right? If, you're, if your wife leaves you, you think he's going to bring your wife back. That may not be how he helps you. you know, if you lose your job, you think he's going to give you a job the next day. That may not be how he helps you. The hard part, I think the hardest part when we, when we sing a psalm like this, for me, you, you give this psalm to me 15 years ago and I'd have sat there with a cynical heart saying, give me a break. I mean, really, come on. In my crisis time, I cry out to God and I don't hear him and I don't see him and I don't see him intervening. Cynicism makes its way in. And I get that. I mean, I get it in our culture. We have advertisers day after day telling us things that we know they're telling us in order to get something from us, right? I mean, when, when you see Tiger Woods or Martha Stewart or Michael Jordan doing an advertising campaign, I mean, do you really think, they must really love this product? Do you? No. Your cynical heart says what? Two questions, right? 
Who wrote it? Who wrote what they're saying? Who was the copyright on this? And how much were they paid? That's what I think. How much did they? What was this 30-second shot? Was that 2 million, 5 million to say it? And so when someone proclaims, when a pastor, or you read this, this fantastic news that in the midst of great crisis you can cry out to God for help, you think cynically as well. You go, come on. Lori and I, we went to Tahoe in July, and we did, we did one of those. I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I'll tell you anyway. We did one of those, uh, I think it was two nights, three days, or three nights, two days, where if you go and you go to a timeshare thing and you listen to what they have to say, you get a discount or you get something free, right? So we did it. And I thought, one hour? What's one hour? We can sit through one hour of anything. We get three nights in this beautiful hotel. We can sit for one hour, so we go. And it was a long hour. In fact, it was longer than an hour. And they said it was only 60 minutes. And we walk in, and, and it's just, it's used car salesmanship to the ninth degree, right? We walk in, and they take you to this really nice place, and they sit you down. Would you like some coffee? Would you like some dessert? You know, the whole nine yards, right? And we sit down, and they said, we'd like you to watch this 10-minute video of the presentation of this timeshare. So we sit down. In 10 minutes. And then they leave, right? So you guys can talk about it and, you know, encourage one another. And I'm thinking it's going to be informational, right? Here's what it is. No. What was it? The whole thing. It was testimonies. Emotional testimonies. Passionate testimonies. They wanted you to firmly believe that if you buy a timeshare, your life will be better. In fact, not just better, it'll be completely transformed, and it was amazing. So they would have all these testimonies. You know, they'd have an older couple. They, they made sure they got the geographic spread. They had the older couple, and they had the younger couple, and they had the family. And they would say, you know, when I bought into this timeshare, it changed my life. And the next couple, it was such a great, it changed my life. And so at the end of it, you know, we're, I'm laughing hysterically, and, you know, Lori and I are kind of joking about it. And the guy comes back in, and he says, so what you, what'd you think of the video? I thought, hmm, am I going to lie? And I thought, you know what, I just want to get out of here. I just want to leave. So I thought, I was going to say, oh, it's fine. You know, it's fine. That's fine. Fine for what you're trying to do. But I was so cynical. I said, you know what? I was fascinated. This is what I did. I counted the number of times those supposed owners told me it changed their life. And if they're right, then I should buy from you right now. Because it's going to change my life. Cynical. If you hear scripture like that, there's good time for cynicism. This is not one. The 124th Psalm was not meant to be read and sung for you to go, right, not in my life. I don't know a God like this. It was meant for you to hear and say, yes, life is hard. There are many hazards. And in the midst of it, I can cry out to God for help and he will help me. You say, well, your passion, how much are you being paid for it? Who wrote your script? This is not an advertisement. This is real. This is God. So, We, if we are cynical, if we read things like if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, we would have been swept away. If we read that and we say who paid, who was the copyright on that, how much did they get for saying it, if we buy into that as an advertising scheme, if your heart is cynical, listen to me, because some of you are struggling with this right now. If your heart is cynical, you've got to bring that out in the open before God and confess it and say, Lord, I'm sorry for being cynical with your promises. I'm sorry for being cynical with the son that you gave to give me the very real help that I need. Forgive me. I would argue this. Do not hesitate with this psalm or any other passage of scripture to put it under spotlight. You know one of the reasons that the gospel is not more powerful and expressing more joy in our life? is we don't take the hard questions. We don't take the deep-seated doubts and bring it under the light of scripture and press it. And if you do... 
If you say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't get this, press it. Test the 124th Psalm. Test any passage of scripture. Put it under spotlight and it will increase your faith. Because if you don't, your faith will become fractured. Your hope will become anemic. And your love will not be displayed as Christ desires it. If you have a cynical heart this morning and you read this thinking, not in my life, then confess that first. Because this is real and God is serious and he desires us to understand it. The real hard questions. The psalm, not just this psalm, the psalms in general. They, they give us a picture. The reason that they've been around so long, you say, well, they've been canonized. Yeah, it's poetry. What kind of poetry lasts? Poetry that's beautiful, poetry that's pretty, or poetry that's real? When you hear it, you go, I get that. That describes me. That describes my life. That describes what I need. You get it. That's why it's here. In fact, Eugene Peterson said this about the Psalms, and it's true. He said, it's warts in all religion. I love that. Warts and all religion. He writes, in the Psalms, every skeptical thought, every disappointing venture, every pain, every despair that we can face in, is lived through and integrated into a personal saving relationship with God. A relationship that also has in its acts of praise, blessing, peace, security, trust, and love. He says, they're all commingled. That's why it makes sense. Tragedy and joy. Right? Crisis and praise together at the same time. The psalm, the psalmist tells us that this is not a commercial, it's not a Holy Spirit media blitz, right? It's not an advertising campaign. He's saying life accurately portrayed is hard. And for the disciple of Jesus Christ, there's help. Life is hard, and for the disciple, there's help. This is not complicated. We go, we're, not, we're not diving into some really hard-to-grasp theological concept. But this is what we reject most of all, what's real. So why do we need it? Second point, why do we need this help? Why? The walk in Christ is hazardous. If you have come to a saving grace and you know him as Lord and you're following him then, and you've lived any period of time, you know this is not an easy walk. <laughs> It's not. There's hazards. There are hazards all over the place. There are hazards at home. There are hazards at work. There are hazards in the church. It's hard. It's not an easy task. And it's not just, well, it's hard for pastors or hard for deacons or hard for ministry leaders. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're trying to work unto the Lord in any capacity as an employee, as an employer, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, working in God is hard. To do it right, to do it faithfully, to do it joyfully, it's not easy. So what's so hazardous, you say? Every single day, as a believer in Christ, you put faith in the line. You know that? Every single day. Every single day you get out of bed. Even if you don't get out of bed, you put faith in the line. How, why? We live in a world, we live in a culture and a time where truth is defined by what we can weigh, quantify, and test empirically. Right? What we can see, what we can evaluate, what we can experiment with. That's truth. We live... According to a faith relationship with God that what? No ear has heard, no eye has seen, no mind can understand. Faith, every day you are called to live by faith in a culture that says faith doesn't exist. Every day you're called to live by faith in a culture that says if you can't measure it and you can't examine it and you can't test it, then it's not real. Every single day you put hope on the line. How so? 
What's your next hour going to be like? I ask you earnestly. How about this afternoon? Do you know for certain? How about tomorrow? You have no idea, do you? I mean, you can speculate. You know, you can, you can hope, right? But hope that we live by in a time when we are ultimately ignorant, right? And we cannot predict our future. You can't predict this week. This week, for some of you, may be catastrophic. You may experience the flood or you may experience the earthquake. This week, who knows? You may go before the doctor and says, you know, you have a terminal illness. You have three weeks to live. You may be driving home in a catastrophic car accident. You may go into work tomorrow and there may be no work. You don't know that. So every single day, you have to live in the hope and the promises given to you by God. Otherwise, you'll be an absolute schizophrenic, anxiety-ridden mess. So you put hope on the line. You put love on the line too, whether you know this or not. You know, love is one of the hardest things to do. Love. It's one of the things that I do worst. One of the things I do most poorly in life is love. I'm much better at competing than I am loving. I'm much better at acquiring what I want, when I want it, how I want it, than I am loving. You see, love is what God enables us to do through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's awkward. We're so good at competing and destroying and tearing apart rather than mending and healing and bringing ministry to people. And every day you put love on the line. Every single day. Every day you say, you know what, I'm going to love even though in the midst of that I may get hurt, I may be angry about it, I may be dissatisfied, but I'm going to love anyway. Because the option is success through pride. And I know the end of that. Every single day, faith, hope, and love, you as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a pilgrim on this path, you are tested. And every single day, you're on, you're on that edge, right? You're on the, the edge of that fault, and you're standing right at the, the edge of the ocean and that, the, the torrent coming over, and your foot's right there near the snare. Every single day, you're just about to fall. And every single day, Christ says, I will not let it happen. Every single day, he says, I will not let you fall. I will hold you, I will guard you, I will protect you. G.K. Chesterton said, and it's famous and you've heard, he said, Christianity has not been tried and found lacking. It's been tried and found difficult, hard. I've never met, I've never met a believer who knows Christ and loves Christ and follows Christ. Says, this is so easy. What's, what's, hard, what's so hard about it? Faith, hope, and love every day in a world that lives opposite every single day. Now, If I left us there, you go, this is depressing. This is a depressing message. How about some hope? This is not the focus of the message. The hazards, the the, uh, the being swallowed up, right, is the backdrop. The focus of the message we find in verses 6, 7, and 8. Look with me. He says, praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. (laughs) It's so great. So we have a miracle, right? You're trapped and set free. You're being overcome, and suddenly you're delivered. And what we have here is the, the psalmist saying, the same person who's on your side, who's fighting for you, is the maker of heaven and earth. And we take all the majesty of the, of the creator, of all that is seen and unseen, and we say, this same majestic, all-powerful creator is by your side in an intimate, real relationship, guarding you, protecting you, walking with you, and helping you, really helping you. You don't cry out for help, and he goes, no, I'm not, not, no, not going to. Every single time, God helps you. Every single time, he breaks the snare. And it's a miracle. It's deliverance. 
Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians. He said, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. He says, this is how we are to go through life. We see the hazards, we see the hardship, and there's always that way out. There's always that help from God every single time, without exception. He is there helping us. We are not, Christians are not supposed to be moralists, always clucking our tongues, you know, at those who are not living as we think they should live. Christians are not supposed to just dismiss truth altogether. We're not supposed to be cynical and hard to those who are really hurting. The Christian sees that truth is real, sees that life is hard, and in the midst of it, they cry out to their God who is their very real help. And they offer that help to others. They don't just say, this is just, you know, I got a God that's going to help me, but you know, you're in pretty bad shape, not going to help you. You offer the same hope that you have through Christ for help for them. You become a witness, not an apologist. So the psalmist says, life's hard and there's real help. If you're going to follow Christ, there are hazards along this path. The last thing that you've got to get is the reality of the help. That it is real. Because some of you, I can, I can even say, some of you are going, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Or, or you believe it, you have a cognitive belief, but it hasn't actually changed how you live. Because if you believe that the creator, the maker of heaven and earth, is your real present help every moment of every day. If you believe that, you'll live differently. It'll change the way you think. It'll change how you relate to people at work. It'll change how you relate to your husband and wife and how you parent your children, if you really believe this. So let me press that last point so you can see where the help really is. In verse 8, the psalmist says, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of the heaven and earth. And he links these two. He's saying this is not just some help. This is not just an expert. This is not someone you go for counsel. This is God. This is the creator of all that is seen and unseen, who is your very real present help. And what he does, what the psalmist does, is so cool. I want you to see this. He takes all the hardship and magnifies it. (laughs) Right? What do we do when we suffer? What do we do? We push it away. We hide it. Right? We justify it. We ignore it. We don't talk about it. But what does he do? He magnifies the fact that the flood's going to cover us. He magnifies that we're going to be swallowed up. He magnifies the fact that we're in a snare. We're going, to, we're going to be torn to pieces by teeth. That doesn't sound good. I'm not a poet. I didn't even like poetry when I was in school. But that does not sound good. Torn apart by teeth. He brings all of these out. And then he shows us this. When we're in the midst of crisis, what do we usually do? Cry. We go to experts, right? I mean, if you're struggling physically, go to a medical doctor. Struggling emotionally, you go to a mental doctor, right? Psychologist, psychiatrist, right? You seek out an expert. If, if, you're, if you're in the midst of crisis and you need greater joy, what do you do? You, you might go and you, I need a sunset or I need a mountaintop experience or I, I need a vacation. I need entertainment. I need something. Something to, to get my mind off the crisis. And the Psalms are saying, you're looking the wrong way. Now, listen, if you haven't heard a word, listen to this. He's saying, don't look out of the crisis. Look into the crisis. The psalmist turns. 
Instead of, instead of saying, I need a mountaintop experience, or I need a vacation, or I need an expert and a doctor, he says, look into the crisis. Look into the struggle. Look into the hardship. And when you look into the details of the pain and suffering, you're going to see the presence of God. Because that's where he is. And I'm not saying you can't see God on that mountaintop. But the psalm is saying there's another way to look. Stop ignoring it. Stop justifying it. Stop trying to cover it up. Stop trying to buy it away. Look into the crisis and see your Savior. Because the help is in it. Not outside of it. Now, I know, for us, culturally, you've got to be kidding me. What does that mean? What does that mean? That means in the midst of hardship, you have some of your greatest opportunities to see the living God through Jesus Christ. In the midst of your worst times and your worst experiences is some of the greatest growth. Can you testify to that? Can you, so raise your hand for me. Just really. Can you testify to the fact that in your times of crisis, you've had some of your greatest growth in Christ? The rest of you haven't had crisis, right? You have. When things are easy, it's easy. When things are hard, Christ shows up in a way that we haven't seen him before. And so the psalmist is saying, look into the details. You know, the, the faithful person is not someone that's born with a healthy digestive system and a sunny outlook on life. That's not the faithful person. The faithful person in Christ is someone who in the midst of trials and suffering and being swallowed up and being overcome by waves, turns and looks into it and sees Christ in the heart of it. We run, we run, we hide, we entertain, we cover up. And he says, look into the eye of the storm and see Christ. You know, there's this assumption by outsiders that Christians are just naive, protected, sheltered people. That's not true. Christians more than anybody else, they know the real sufferings of life. They know sin. They know the consequences of sin. They know their own struggle with sin. They know. Christians are not naive. It's just the opposite. We have a clearer picture of reality than everybody else. And that's why it's so hard. Your neighbor's struggle with gambling is not just a struggle with gambling. It's a crisis issue. It's a gospel issue. Your best friend's marital compromise is not just a bad relationship going worse. It's infidelity and sin against the holy God. You know that. A look up to the heavens or the sunset or a snow-covered mountain can bring a sense, a breathtaking sense of the presence of God. So the psalmist is saying, that's bad. The psalmist is saying, look, there's another way to look too. Look into it. See it. Look into your anxiety and say, why am I so anxious? Look into your depression and say, why am I so depressed? Look into your cynicism. Why am I so cynical? Look into that and identify it. Because if you dig deep enough, guess what? You're going to find a Savior and you're going to find Christ if you know Christ. And your cynicism will change. Your anxiety will change. And your approach toward life will change. And the questions you ask will change. There's no greater testimony. There's no greater example. I mean, this is an easy illustration, right? The body and blood, which we're going to have a chance to celebrate in a moment, of Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of God's help coming out of absolute crisis. We saw God help. He delivered the nation of Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt, right? We saw that. That's easy. You say, praise be to God. He helped us. He set us free. We, see, we saw God's help in the desert, right? As they're crying out for food and water. And he helps them. He brings them food and water. They don't like it, but he brings it to them anyway, right? 
when, when Daniel's throwing the, the lion's den, he cries out to the Lord and God helps him. The teeth don't tear him apart. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, he helps them by how they don't get burned. Right? They come out unscathed. We see God's help there. That's easy to see. You say, well, where is God in my fiery furnace? And where is God when I'm in the lion's den? Where? And he's saying, at the cross. Because at the cross, you have the greatest crisis in all of human history. You have the darkest moment, right? At the cross, you have our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was the man. He was the guy that lived a life that we should have lived. He died a death that we should have died. He was the best friend. He was the best lover. He was, he was the best everything. And what happened to him? He was killed. He was put on a cross and he was killed. The greatest crime, the darkest moment. In fact, it literally got dark, right? The sun refused to shine. And it got dark in that moment. So dark that people could not see. The greatest injustice to the greatest friend, to the one who was perfectly submissive to the Father, took place as his arms were stretched out and his feet were nailed to the cross. And yet, in the midst of the greatest crisis in human history, mankind received its greatest hope. In the midst of the greatest injustice, the greatest injustice that's ever been committed against any man or woman in all of history, mankind gets his greatest help. In the midst of the greatest crime man committed against God, God brings grace and mercy and help to those who committed the murder. It's extraordinary. Because at the cross, listen, Jesus Christ was literally swept away by the wrath of God. Jesus Christ was swallowed up in the pit of hell. This is not hyperbole. This is reality. Jesus Christ was caught in the snare of our sins on that cross. And he bore our sins in total. Why? So that you wouldn't be swept away, but could stand firm on the rock. Him. Right? So that you wouldn't be swallowed up by the wrath of God, and you wouldn't be swallowed up by the pit of hell, but you would be set free by Him. So that that snare would not bind you, that sin and death would no longer bind you. But you would have life and joy and peace with Christ forever and ever. Amen? The greatest tragedy in all of human history brought us the greatest help. And so the psalmist is saying to us, he was looking forward to that which we look back to. He said, as in the midst of crisis, look into the crisis and see the cross. See the Christ. See the man who was swallowed up and swept away and ensnared so that you wouldn't be. And when you do that, if you do that, you will have an understanding and a perspective on God that will grow you and minister to you in the midst of the crisis. And you won't be destroyed. You'll stay intact. How many of you still don't believe me? I see skepticism on your faces. You still think I cried out and he doesn't answer. Test him. Try him. Stop turning to all the things you think will find the answer. Stop trying to avoid trials. They'll come. When they come, stop turning to all the worldly answers. They don't last. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the raging waters, in the midst of the earthquake, look into the crisis and see the Christ. 
He will come to you and he will bring help. Maybe not as you expect, but he will be your ever-present help in your time of need. The maker of heaven and earth. I know how hard it is to read a psalm like this and not be cynical and say, I don't believe it. The psalmist believed it. And the saints throughout the centuries have believed it. Because it's true. It's true. Life is hard. The discipleship, the pilgrim's path is hazardous. But God says, I'm there. I am your real help. The maker of heaven and earth, I'm here. Call on me. Turn to me. Stop trying to flee. Turn to me instead. I'm going to pray right now that that truth will permeate you in such a way that it'll change the way that you live. That you'll find the crisis you experienced this week. You'll experience it differently. You'll look into it and you'll find a Christ who's there in the midst of it. Let's pray. Father, I know how hard this is for me to believe sometimes. I get angry. I ask why. And the whole time you're saying, see me in the midst of it all. That I will not let you drown. I will not let you be swallowed up. I will not let you remain ensnared. I will set you free. See that truth. How radically we would live. How differently we would live. If we knew Jesus Christ that way. If we saw him as the one who gave his life that we might live and then came to us and comes to us through the power of the Holy Spirit to live every day in that strength and that hope. How joyful we would be as a people. How joyful we would be. How thankful we would be. How humble we would be. Change us like that, Father, so that we would be that salt and the light, radiant people in the midst of this world where there is much trial and much pain and much suffering. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.